Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss what leadership looks like in the modern insurance business. We talk to insure tech leaders and founders, innovators and change agents from the insurance industry. We also talk to thought leaders from outside the industry, such as organizational psychologists, performance coaches and investment professionals. Anyone who can add value to the conversation on how to lead insurance businesses of the future. Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. I am your host um, and bizarrely for once, I am your guest on the Leadership and Insurance podcast. Uh, my name's Alex Bond. Um, this is a different one. Um, and this is one I've been thinking about doing for some time. Um, we're approaching 50 episodes. We've had some fabulous guests um, and they've all been very kind and honest and transparent um, and shared their kind of hopes and aspirations um, and kind of innovations with us. Um, and we've centered it around business. Um, but I work in the recruitment industry and um, sometimes that kind of slips the attention because, you know, the podcast rightly doesn't focus on that. But I am a recruitment professional. Um, I run an executive search firm called FinPro, um, subtly advertised over there. Um, so it's about people. And for me, business is completely about people. So, you know, whether you're trying to grow your business or whether you're trying to innovate, um, it's really the people that make that happen. And so with that in mind, um, as we approach 50 episodes, um, I wanted to podcast to get a little bit more personal. Um, and when I say personal, um, I don't want to get here and talk about, you know, necessarily everyone's kind of weekend pursuits, but I did want to talk about personal journeys. I did want to put, talk about personal challenges um, and something that's probably discussed a little bit too flippantly and frequently, I think, is, is mental health. Um, there's a million and one mental health podcasts, and I certainly don't want this to become one, but um, I did want to get into those kind of founder journeys and founder challenges because, you know, as someone that runs a small business, um, there are challenges um, and they are personal challenges and they are very much kind of probably fit in the mental health realm, whether that be imposter syndrome or whether that just be kind of the relentlessness of it all because the buck stops with you. Um, we've had some great guests on the, the, the podcast, um, you know, all the way back to episode one, um, Navi was very kind to share some of the challenges she'd been through on a personal level. Um, we had Amrit from Hyper Exponential, who does a brilliant podcast called Startup Dads and talks about challenges of kind of managing a startup and managing a family and growing family. Um, but I don't think I'd shared my journey. Um, and I don't think I'd discuss kind of the challenges I'd get, gone through. Um, and the reason I think that's important is because um, I do want to open up that kind of more personal conversation. I'm um, not like every episode, but I do want to talk about the challenges of being a founder, the pressures that are unique to that. Um, and I felt it was kind of disingenuous or unfair, if nothing else, not to not to share my journey. So um, this might be a different one. It might not be for you. You might want to switch off. Um, it certainly won't be as long, I don't think. I don't think we need an hour of my mental health history. Um, and this certainly won't be therapy. But I want to talk about my journey, how I manage it, um, and what I think we can do as, as employers um, in kind of potentially making, making things better. So 
I've got a checkered history with, with mental health. Um, I've been treated for various kind of mental health issues since I was kind of my late teens. And I don't think that's uncommon. Um, I certainly don't think it was a very positive experience. I got treated for depression when really it was probably exam pressure. I come from a very academically pushed family, um, you know, lots of pressure to do well. And, and, and I don't think I cope with that pressure well. So um, I was treated for depression in my sort of like late teens, 17, 18. Um, and that was very much 1990s Britain. Um, here's some citalopram, antidepressant choice, take that, go away. Um, I sort of came back in my early 20s and, and again, kind of university time um, for kind of a, a bit of help and assistance. And um, I did actually have a doctor say, I don't know why you're telling me, um, <laughs> which is it's enough story altogether. But um, again, here's some antidepressants and, and, and disappear and go away. Um, I got introduced slightly to sort of talking therapies at that time, but I, I wasn't in the position for it. It wasn't any kind of comment on the people that were conducting it. I just, I just wasn't ready to discuss it. And, you know, there's so much going on with your life when you're in your early 20s. And um, let's just say my life was pretty chaotic and I was kind of self-medicating, I think is the polite way of doing it. Um, and I know most people self-medicate themselves from university, but um, trust me when I say this was, a, this was on the kind of exotic end of the scale. Um, and it was a challenge. Um, and work sorted me out. And I, and I don't say that from, a, you know, pushing the capitalist drum or, or from any kind of, I don't know, <laughs> um, religious further about work being kind of good for the soul, but I think work was good for me. Um, and uh, yeah, I got a graduate position at RSA Insurance Company um, in Chelmsford. Um, and I was very grateful for it. It was, it was, gave me some nine to five structure um introduced me to the world of work um in a kind of more kind of formal setting um don't let us think this be the first time i had a job i was one of those kicked out to get a paper around working class kids you know worked at woolworths and uh, worked on bars and anything to pay my way to that point but my first kind of proper office nine to five wear a suit to work stuff which is very important for a working class family from essex um, when you've worn a suit, you've made it. Um, and I got to wear my suit for RSA. And it, it wasn't for me, uh, actually. Um, I, I, I always kind of joked that I was probably the worst insurance employee ever. Um, and I think that's probably fair. <laughs> uh, I, I love the client side of it. And we were I was in part of the commercial team and we, we had some clients that we engaged with. And um, that's the thing that I kind of held on to. Um, and, and some friends of mine doing really well went to the uh, recruitment industry. But this isn't about my work history. But essentially, my, my, my mental health kind of stabilised at that point. And I think kind of that stability of work was really, really important. Um, and... That remained the case until I was sort of in my later 20s, uh, about 27. And 27 for me was a really important sort of point um, because that's that for me is the, is the kind of low. This is the low of my kind of mental health journey. It's the low of my kind of um, life. Um, and I like to think, fingers crossed, it's the lowest I'll ever get. And And I don't really know why that was. I don't know what the magic bullet was but between 27 and about 29 it, it, it my mental health fell off a cliff um and it's a really interesting period for me to look back on and reflect because 
I was working at Eames Consulting um, and a shout out to Eames Consulting. It was a phenomenal business and, and, and still is. And, and it was absolutely zero to do with, with, with the business. And in fact, you know, one thing I would say is that um, they were incredibly supportive, um, but I struggled. I was, I was struggling to get out of bed. I was, I was drinking to excess. Um, I'd put on a huge amount of weight, which for me is, is, is usually a sign that I'm not doing very well. I might flash up a photo of me at 30, but I went up to 18 stone and I was, you know, I was going out drinking four or five times a week. Now I could masquerade it as kind of client work and it very much was, but, but it, it's not positive for me. Um, and, um, yeah, like I say, I was very, very lucky, um, that I worked for uh, Matthew Eames, I worked for a guy called Richard Griffiths, um, and, and, and they, were, they were incredible. Um, and as soon as I came to them, they said, you know, take some time out. But um, the sort of scale of the problem was that I got to the point where I locked myself in a room, I didn't want to come out, and, um, you know, was refusing to kind of leave it, and, and mainly because I thought I was a danger to society. So let's delve into what that is. Luckily, I was doing really, really well at work. Um, and the irony being that, and this is why I think it's important to talk about work, is that it's one of the most successful periods of my recruitment career. In fact, up until now, it's probably the most successful point of my recruitment career. Um, I built a really good niche for myself. I specialised in kind of senior level claims recruitment. Um, I, I got invited in to kind of work on most of the good stuff. Um, I had some really good clients. Um, and um, I, was, I was doing well financially um, for the for the company as well. Um, but behind the scenes, I was I was falling apart. Um, I didn't know why, and so I kind of assumed it was on the sort of depression vein. And um, I, I was I was lucky enough that financially I was able to kind of pay for some, um, you know, good counselling, talking therapy, and 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 you know I I, I don't want to overplay it, but I think. I think that guy saved my life. Um, I went to see a doctor in North London who sat with me. Um, and it was it was kind of emergency scenarios. You know, I, I had to put an emergency call into my dad. And, and, you know, I don't call my dad. You know, we don't speak. But I, I didn't know where else to turn. And, and he came and picked me up from the side of the road and, um, you know, took me home. We went to the doctors and... You know, there wasn't much support there again. You know, I think it's an unfortunate situation in the UK that NHS just doesn't have the facilities or, or, or money to sort of offer the mental health support that we should get. Um, but like I say, I paid for it and, and we went to see this guy and um, he listened to me. And, and you know, the, the magic turning point where, where it kind of takes a more positive tone is that um, he just basically said, I think you've been misdiagnosed. And his was that, yes, you are depressed. Um, but you have an anxiety disorder um, and your anxiety when it gets very extreme drives the depression. So my specific mental health is that I have a form of OCD. It's an obsessive compulsive thought. Um, essentially I'll get a negative thought and then that negative thought will reverberate around my brain. And, and I always like to think about it like a, it's like a roundabout. Um, a kid's, kid's playground. So you've got this spinning plate. And, and when it's going kind of fairly slowly, you can all jump on and jump off as you like. Um, but when it starts to speed up, it's almost impossible to get off and it's almost impossible to get on. So the thoughts that are on that train 
reverberate around my brain forever um, and nothing else can come in. So it's incredibly disruptive to things like work because, you know, I'll be in a meeting or I'll be trying to have a phone call and, and, and I'm not present. You know, my mind is thinking about some negative thought. And um, just to give you an example, the best way to explain it is if, if you've ever driven down a motorway and you're just driving along and sort of your brain's a bit bored and your brain will go, well, what would happen if you just pulled the wheel? Um, and you don't do it, but everyone thinks that, you know, that's perfectly normal. Um, but then most people go, well, that was weird. And then the thought will just disappear. The problem that I had was that I was I was hanging on to that negative thought, and then I was kind of obsessing about that negative thought about what does it mean about me and what, you know, you're a bit of a nutter and uh, you know all that negative stuff and negative self talk, and then that becomes a kind of cycle of conversation. So you've got these kind of cycles of conversation that are are, are, are so pervasively negative, and the thought is so pervasive in a day that functioning. Is, is difficult um, and to the point where it's it impossible. And I always said that I kind of understood when I started to understand what people meant with kind of like a, 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 the voices. And I was very conscious that it was my voice and it was me and it's my thought, but it was so kind of pervasive that it almost felt other. Because it, 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 I couldn't think of things that were in front of me that I had to do very simple tasks. Um, and the crazy thing is it, it just took some psychologist sitting in front of me saying, right, this was a study. And, and, I, and I'm a kind of facts guy. I'm a science guy. I, I, that's why I love the technology side of what we do. Um, and he said, look, this is a study of, I think it was a thousand people. And it was like, what's the most negative thought they'd had that week? And and it was, it was just like, this is, these were like normal inverted commas people. These were people that had no sort of diagnosed mental health problems. And it was just things like mother, mothers that thought of smothering their baby, partners that thought about killing, you know, killing their partner in their sleep. And, you know, um, people had thought about kind of like uh, dropping a baby on, on, on purpose. And you know, I don't know why there was always kind of like baby stuff, but it, you know, it, I suppose that's because of the things I remember because they're so kind of like frightening to think about. But they were like, these are normal people and these are normal thoughts, but it's it's the action that makes the person. It's not the thought itself. So um, it was almost like a light bulb moment. I suddenly went, oh, okay, you're not crazy. And, and I suppose that was the kind of fear. Um, and look, it wasn't like it stopped there. Where does it come from? How do we manage it? But mostly it was about management. We did some CBT. Um, and thankfully, I, you know, I turned 40 last month. Um, and it's it's never been back there since. You know, it's never been close to there. Um, it's not to say I don't have moments of anxiety. It's not to say I don't have to kind of be aware that, you know, I might be holding on to something. Um, but generally speaking, um, you know, it, it was just an upward curve from there. So... Yeah, I mean, firstly, thank you to Richard Griffiths, who's my immediate manager, who was amazing at the time um, and really supportive. Um, and, and Matthew Eames as well, because Matthew was um, very aware of it. It was a much smaller business there. It was like 25 people. So, you know, for one of their guys to go missing for, um, you know, best part of a month was, you know, noticeable. Um, and it was very supportive. So what does that mean for me? And what, what, what do I do going forward? Well, first thing I did actually, um, I did take uh, antidepressants at the time um citalopram was on citalopram for a good couple of years i don't think there's anything wrong with it um 
I saw some studies saying that kind of they're not hugely effective, but they take the edge off. Um, and and when you're at that heightened point, um, and it's really kind of getting extreme, I think it just gave me the breathing space to go out and get the therapy and the, the counselling. Um, and counselling is is a tough one. Um, I, I just come back from a holiday and I was talking to a friend of mine and I said he'd been through quite a traumatic experience. And I said, I think personally, I would, I would suggest you embrace it, uh, try it out. It might not work for you. Um, but I think it's, I think it's obvious that it works. Um, I, I just think about it like personal training. It's, it's the only way I've ever thought about it. Like I, I um, wanted to learn boxing um, and I got a boxing coach because I don't know anything about boxing. And, you know, when you need to hone your skills in, in, in the gym, um, if you need just the motivation to get fit, a personal trainer or, or a specialized trainer is, is, is the best way to sort of navigate to, to where you want to be. Um, we don't seem to apply the same thing to our mental health. You know, sometimes you need a helping hand. Sometimes you need the person that's going to sort of phone you up and try and get you out of bed in the morning and make you go to the gym. Or sometimes you need the person that's going to kind of get you through the sort of mental gymnastics and give you the tools to kind of manage um, your mental health. And it may only be for a period of time. It, it's not, I, I'm not some of these people that I don't identify that, oh, I'm, I have an anxiety disorder. Um, I have a tendency towards it. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that either, but I just... I, I sort of prefer to kind of view it that, you know, if you're an athlete, every now and again, you get a sprain. Um, if you're training for something, you'll probably injure yourself. And you know what, sometimes you need to tune up. And, and that's how I view counselling. So, you know, at the moment, I've been going through some. Um, uh, weirdly, because work was going so well, and I think I was getting rid of imposter syndrome. I didn't sort of know what to do. Um, I think lockdown's been really hard for most people. We've been, you know, I know we've come out some side of it now but you know we don't see as many people as we might do um and and probably if i'd sort of see more people to talk to maybe that maybe that maybe it wouldn't be needed but i, I have no shame in it it doesn't doesn't concern me it, it's it's something that i've been doing for a couple of months it's been really positive and actually i'll probably wrap it up in the next couple of weeks and and then i might not do it again for a while but i think dipping in and out of it is absolutely fair uh, and, and trying different people i i, I certainly you know, not every personal trainer is for you. I do not like going to a gym class and we've got some happy, clappy lunatic at the front. Um, you know, my boxing coach, for example, is a very terrifying Scottish man that's ex-military and I, I love that. And, you know, but um, the kind of disco glitter ball, yo, 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 uh, people are just not for me. Um, you're not going to get me at some spin cycle classes, put it that way, because I'm too cynical and negative. Um, but, you know, I think it is about finding the right person. Um, I certainly went through a few at the start and, and I think I know what does and doesn't work for me. Um, and I went through two before I found this person and, and it's just one session, didn't work, went to the next person. Um, you, can, you, you can't feel bad about the fact it doesn't work out. Some people are just not the right fit to get you on your journey. If you, you know, taking the professional athlete example, um, athletes are always changing their trainers to mix things up. Um, using the, 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 the boxing example, um, you know, Tyson Fury trains his trainer to, to beat Deontay Wilder and it, and it worked. So, yeah, um, I wanted to take a little specific mention of lockdown. I think lockdown's been challenging for a lot of people. Um, I think um, it's been 
hard because people hadn't seen people but also personally for me it highlighted some of the things that 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 were stressful about the job you know a, a lot of recruitment jobs is, is going to clients um you go to these big purposely impressive buildings that are 40 stories high and you go to some massive boardroom and you've got to do a you know presentation and um you know i'm someone that's a i quite talk about it quite openly i trained as an actor i do stand-up comedy i um these are things I do for fun. Presenting is not an issue, but um, certainly I, I personally find it's an unnecessary pressure to perform. It's a, it, particularly when, you know, if it can be done over Zoom, I, I think that helps. And I, and I think we need to kind of balance, you know, people as individuals. And, and that's what I, I kind of, I suppose I want to move on to next is, is about if we're going to talk about how do I manage it and look I'm not a mental health professional I'm just talking about my experience and so how I manage my mental health is, is different to how anyone else might but I think thinking about things and obviously we're going to move on to talk about what I think we, we do need to think about but recognizing the needs of the individual and, and so for me one of the things about lockdown that I found is that I actually prefer doing Zoom meetings most of the time. Um, I think face-to-face -face is important. I think you lose a lot. And I think it's certainly really nice to build rapport. And, and I sort of go to my clients now and say, look, let's go and have a meeting um, over lunch, but let's not really put the pressure on kind of work. If we need to talk about a specific remit, if we need to talk about kind of, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's on some contracts, let's do that over Zoom because we can do that quickly and efficiently. And, and then we can just move on to sort of, being humans and, and spending time together and, and, and building rapport. So I've talked about therapy. I've talked about medication. I think both of those are completely valid. Um, I'm not on medication, haven't been for a long time. And like I say, therapy is something that I hadn't actually had for a long, yeah, good for five years, but I, I recently picked up again. And I just think it's something I needed to do. I've just recently got a PT because I've got a bit fat. So, you know, I haven't had one of them for years either. So I don't think there's anything um, unusual in just picking it up and putting it down as it suits you. Um, sleep's a big thing for me. Um, I don't sleep particularly well, um, but sleep is definitely something that um, is, is underplayed. And I think when we're talking about things in the context of startups and, and, and the pressure of entrepreneurship, um, it's really tempting to, to not get enough of it. Um, I work the US and the UK markets or European markets, and yeah, sometimes I find myself getting up at eight, starting at eight, and then and then working through, and then you know I might have a last call at one o'clock in the morning, and that's not sustainable. Um, so you know, I'm quite fortunate, and I work for you know, retained assignments most of the time. Um, so I'm only working on remits where clients have sort of engaged me up front, so I kind of manage the amount of time that that's. Sort of takes so if i'm working lots of us market i might start later in the day um but i've got to get that sleep right and it's really important um, and it's definitely something i don't work on enough but everything feels better after good sleep um the other thing everything feels better after um and my good friend bruce bignall was probably the phrase i was he, he says to me you never feel worse after exercising and he's 100 right um yeah i'm gonna have to flash that photo up of me looking like a absolute mess but I really didn't look after myself um having been a really sporty guy when I was younger and played basketball football and swam county and you know, dancing was a big thing in my family that's the kind of slightly unusual um exercise was a big part of my life when I was younger but I just I just as soon as I hit work I really struggled to find the time for it and now it's something that I force myself to find the time for because if I don't exercise that's that's the biggest detriment I see on my mental health 
Um, I recently got into running the last year, um, did an ultra marathon um, in August. Um, and that's not the humble brag. It's just like, I, I need a purpose towards my exercise. So, you know, I was training for that and that was great. And actually I've noticed since, since I finished that, I kind of, it's fallen off a bit of a cliff and, you know, like I said, I've just, I've just engaged with the PT um, just cause I've got to get that kind of regular exercise. For me, it needs to be most days. I think if, if I don't go, um, I don't have an active day, I, you know, this weekend I spent the whole weekend painting a house which was fairly active you know I didn't need to fit any exercise in there but um personally for me I think exercise is hugely important releases endorphins it also relaxes me into work I just I feel I feel more calm about work it, it doesn't stress me out as much but um I think all these things that kind of sleep exercise therapy the, the challenge is always kind of like committing to finding the time um but I think just being kind to ourselves is that businesses are just about people um your business will succeed or fail because of your ability but also kind of you know if you're in a fit state to do it and fit state means looking after yourself and and, and what that means for you and obviously you're going to have times and days where you don't get time to exercise and you don't get time to sit in your therapist and you don't have time to kind of sleep enough but those need to be rare um for me they need to be rarer than they are kind of prevalent and certainly you know i i've i've really found periods of time when it's really difficult to do but the i'm not my best so i would rather work less and be more efficient if that means i get to fit in the things that kind of mean i'm at my best rather than just dragging out one of those big long days where you don't get anything done and i think lockdown has been good for that you know the focus has been on quality work and getting work done um than you know this kind of culture of oh you need to be in the office as many hours as possible um alcohol's a thorny subject particularly in the ac3 in london and uh, the insurance market um just come off back of the holiday with a couple of well quite, some really good friends from school um and and sort of additional friends that have grown over the time which happens you know as you get older and um good friend of mine, Dan, works in the insurance industry um, and another couple of guys came from insurance um, and we were out there and we were talking about it and, and the culture of, of insurance in London is, 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 is pretty boozy. I don't think it's unique. Um, I know people who work in law, who work in banking, and I think drinking is still kind of quite a big sort of social thing. Um, for me personally, that's not, it's not great. Um, I, I, I try and avoid it. Um, I do drink, um, but I have long periods where I haven't drunk. And, and I'll be honest, those long periods where I haven't drunk, I think have been mostly more positive than, than the drinking ones. Um, I need to manage it personally. For me, I, it, it's such a kind of uh, drain on my enthusiasm. Um, and I just don't have the time for it. But yeah, it might just sound like someone who's sort of Getting, getting older and those hangovers are getting worse but yeah I'd, I'd not been drinking on the run up to this ultra and then I, I completed this ultra in August and then because it was my birthday in September and I was turning 40 almost every celebration involved a very large amount of good wine um love good wine um love a good good night out but but actually the kind of like build up of where it left me um just reminded me that that you know managing that relationship with alcohol is is, is a is a big thing and you know, I'm going to go on to talk about, you know, what I think we can do at work 
um because i think alcohol and work have got a kind of very unhealthy relationship um so those are the things for me like counseling when it's needed um medication if, if it's if it's kind of required and it works for you and it does work for some people really really well great sleep um exercise as much as possible and then and then yeah like limit the alcohol but that's just me and i'm not a mental health professional when i'm just sharing this because yeah i i I want to get people on here to talk about these sorts of subjects. And I think it's disingenuous if I don't share my story um, because it has been a big part of my life. And, then, and, and certainly up to my late twenties, it was really pervasive and difficult. And, and it's only through kind of understanding and going through these experiences, I kind of come out the other side and, and, and have a fairly open and, I think healthy view of, of, of managing mental health. Um, so what can we do as employers? Um, lots, I think. But the big thing, the overarching thing um, for me is that mental health is health. It, it, we trust our employees to tell us when they're too sick to work. We trust people when they phone us and say, we're not well, we're not going to work today, or I need to work from home today, or, you know, and we need to trust them further um, to let them include their mental health in that. Um, and I think we need to be voc vocal and proactive about that. Um, and until we see mental health as part of sick days as, as part of something where you just don't feel great you don't want to come in or you don't want to work or you want to kind of change your, your kind of work today until that trust happens um we're not in the right direction um one thing that i think has been positive about lockdown is is the trust that's gone into people because we've had to we've we've been remote working for two years now um when people probably haven't previously and and we've therefore had to trust um, our teammates and our colleagues more um, and with that trust comes responsibility but hopefully with that trust comes trust that people will manage their mental health better if we allow them to so we trust people that if they're not fit to work they're not fit to work and that needs to include those where they just don't feel well from a mental health perspective um, and I think we're a little far from that I do see really good initiatives um lots of people are giving away kind of either remote services where they have you know professionals that people can call anonymously or whether it's things you know small steps like giving people the calm app so they can kind of manage their sort of wellness um encouraging people to go to the gym um encouraging people to take holidays i think that's an important thing and I, and I think the balance of all of that is really challenging for startups you know startups are by nature usually under resourced even if they've got you know financially they're there um finding good people is hard and takes time <laughs> you know I, I i know if it was easy i wouldn't have a job um so you can be under resourced just because you're looking to hire people and you can't and that puts a strain on your, your staff uh, so I think I think in that sense we owe it to our teams to be as resourced as we can um, and hire as efficiently as quickly as we can, so people have kind of the right numbers of people in their team to do their job efficiently. And I think that's underplayed how important that is. Um, we quite often hire super talented people that are 
you know, we talk about people wearing many hats and, and people who join early stage startups particularly wear many, many hats. And that's part of the appeal. Um, and that's part of the skill set requirement. However, we can't overuse and abuse that skill set. You know, we do need to recognize that that is an unsustainable um, model and that we need to bring in people to support those people. And, and we need to do it quickly and efficiently. Um, and that might mean spending some money with people like me to do it faster. <laughs> but, um, you know, I do think it's important that we, we don't just look at, oh, what can we do and offer people like counselling services and, and, and time off? We, we do need to offer um, people, um, you know, the support from the teammates. Time off is an interesting one. Um, you know, it's been a lot of kind of drive towards this kind of unlimited time off. Not convinced about it. Some of the some of this kind of studies out there suggest that when you offer unlimited time off, people take less. Um, I think enough people know that now. So if you're offering it, are you offering it with, you know, from a genuine position, or are you offering it in the hope that people kind of culturally work? more so maybe it's unlimited time off but a minimum time off required and i think that was always a really interesting thing that actually going back to richard who managed me at Ames, he always he, he said um you should take a, a whole layer quarter even if it's a uh, you know a long weekend um and i get that recruitment's quite full-on it's pretty long hours it's quite competitive um and i i don't do that but um I, I think it's a sort of healthy viewpoint for most people to have. You know, regular breaks from work, the phone goes off, you're not contactable. Um, and that's the thing we can do is, re is respect people's space. You know, one of the massive challenges that I've talked about loads is, or I've talked about with, with employers and, 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 and people, um, you know, looking for new jobs and the work has become increasingly pervasive in their day. Um, yeah, you now probably check your emails the second you get up. So you might be checking them at six in the morning. Um, you're probably checking them before you go to bed. The gap where you're not thinking about work has got smaller. You know, that day, if you're thinking about work, you're working, um, whether you're kind of proactively doing something or anything, um, you are working. So if you're checking your emails at 12 o'clock at night, and then you're checking them at six o'clock in the morning, you've got six hours where you're not thinking about work and that's that's a sort of dangerous road to ruin. So policies on communication, I think are important. Um, setting limits of that and, and trying to enforce them on your staff as well. You know, if, if staff are responding at sort of 12 o'clock at night, they shouldn't be. But we've got to make sure as employers that we're not sending out that communication at that time. So they have to respond or they feel they should respond. Um, so we can offer things like therapies. We can offer services like, you know, calm electronically and, and budgets. Are, I know budgets are difficult, but a lot of these things are fairly cheap, but, but really a sort of openness to conversation. And I think really having a culture where mental health is health is, is the overarching thing, you know, we need to respect people as individuals. They're not the same. You know, we've, I've, I've talked about, I like me, I love people. I love being with people physically in the room. Um, I don't want to do pitches all the time, every day. Um, I don't want to travel into London for an hour and a half from Brighton to do a half hour pitch that I could have done over Zoom. Um, now, some people might say I'm going to lose out. That might be the case. Um, but 
for the stress it puts on my day. I have to travel lots. There's kind of money I don't want to spend. There's time I don't want to spend. Um, to have a meeting that I don't think is done any better face to face. I think lots of people, lots of things are, and I don't want to kind of underplay face to face. But for me personally, um, that puts a kind of unnecessary stress on my day, particularly if, I, if I'm having a bad day, if I'm having a sort of bit of a down day. I don't want to put the battle suit on and go and have five meetings and present face to face. Sometimes I just don't want to do that. And I think, you know, most of the time things can be done by Zoom, but that's personal to me. So I think thinking about people as individuals and allowing them the flexibility to kind of work um, as what works for them as much as is possible is, is, is a huge key component of this. We can offer supportive um, elements. We can offer people to talk to. We can, you know, invest in people's mental health and well-being by um, trying to support them by maybe getting them gym memberships, by getting them kind of access to some of these kind of therapies, by giving them kind of decent amounts of holiday that, that we encourage them to use. But really, it's about a kind of cultural shift. Um, and I'm pleased to see. I think those cultural shifts are happening. Um, but in startups, I think it it is difficult. Um, and we have to take a step back from what we're doing. And innovation is important, but people are more important. And, you know, to quote Richard Griffiths a third time, which I've done quite a few times in this podcast, he was like, we're not saving lives here. Um, some of you might be, but, but for most of what we're doing, it's, it's, it's business and it's important. Um, and we care. And it's important that you care. And startups kind of do require blood, sweat and tears. But ultimately um not at the cost of the, the, the teams and and i think most people are getting it right um but i think we need to be aware that not everyone is the same and certainly you know i'm a perfect example i'm someone that operates very well in high tech periods of stress um you know my worst mental health period was one of my most successful periods of work and i don't think anyone else would have known um, but I knew, and, and thankfully, I've been through it enough to kind of put my hand up and say, well, I'm not coping. Your teams might not be the same. So if you can carry every thought process, you know, think about every benefit, think about every kind of interaction and think about every um, structure of the way you communicate your team from a point of view of how is this impacting their mental health? Um, I think we're in a good place. Well, that's me. That's my journey. Um, that's my thoughts on it. And I hope that was interesting. And I hope that was kind of resonated a little bit. Obviously, happy to talk to anyone about any of the stuff that I've talked about on, on, the, on the podcast. Um, there's some more specific stuff we can do around recruitment. But, um, you know, on a one to one basis, I'd, I'd love to talk to anyone that this resonates with. I'd love to talk to some founders who want to talk about this kind of stuff, but I'm conscious that you might not want to. So that's why I thought I'd start with the olive branch and I'd start by putting that out there. I hope that's been enjoyable. Um, I promise you that we'll get back to talking about um, technology and related things and innovation and insurance in the more traditional sense in, in the next week. Um, but I thought that was important to share. I hope that's been um, interesting, if nothing else. Um, and if nothing else, you've learned more about me, then um, that's a good thing. So um, I'd love to hear from anyone and um, yeah, please feel free to reach out. I've been Alex Bond from FinPro. You can get me at alex at wearefinpro.com. Take care. Bye.
As always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email, uh, alex at wearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.